Well, join me in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 7. You know, last week we were talking about how when you study the Bible, you can sort of do it one of two ways, and both ways are extremely profitable. One of the ways that you can study the Bible is sort of uh, the bird's eye view, just a full storyline. It's sort of like when you travel in an airplane. Does anybody here actually enjoy air travel? There's a few of you. Bless you. I'm not one of you. Uh, uh, I'm just a nervous wreck the whole time that I'm traveling by, by, by air. It goes with the enclosed spaces like we were talking about last week. But, but, but anyway, when you're flying in, say, to a large city, a couple of times I've flown into New York City. And when you're coming in, you can see New York City from miles away, particularly if you're coming into New York City at nighttime. You see all the lights, that bustling city. And, and then when you land on the airplane and you actually go into New York City, you can see it up close and personal. That's, Bible study can work that way. One, you can just take the, the bird's eye view, sort of the air travel way. That's sort of what we're doing this summer, by the way. We're getting the full storyline of the Bible. You do know the Bible has a storyline, right? The Bible storyline is how God has redeemed us for his own glory, how he's done that. So we're taking it little section by little section for the whole storyline of the Bible. That's why last week we were in Exodus. This week we're in 2 Samuel. You say, wait, how do we move so fast? We're taking the, the bird's eye view. In Sunday school... We took the up-close view for us in our class this morning studying the book of Ruth. This kind of one person named Ruth and how redemption worked in her life. And so the, the Bible is profitable in studying both of those ways. So in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we're going to talk about the God who reigns. It's our fourth sermon in this series. So if you've just tr- been tracking along with us, we started with this. One, he's the God who made everything. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. Everything that there is was created by God. And then secondly, we saw that he's the God who does not crush the rebels. Eve got this crazy idea in her mind. You know what the idea was? That she could be God. The temptation in Genesis 3 is not about Eve wanting a little piece of an apple. Sometimes you see it uh, uh, drawn that way. No, no, no. Here's what the here's the temptation. For God knows, Eve, when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What does that phrase, knowing good and evil, mean? All through Genesis 1, you remember? God made such and such, and he said it was good. He said it was good. He said it was good. Do you know what the serpent, the devil, the enemy whispers into Eve's ear? You can do that. You get to decide what's good and what's bad. You get to decide what's good and what's evil for your life. And how often do you hear a statement like this? Who are you to tell me what's right in my life? We hear that all the time, don't we? And it goes back to the little whisper in the garden that says to men and women that you have the right to tell God what is right and what is wrong. Do you want to know the truth? We don't have that right. You say, well, who's God? to to have all the rights. He's God. What gives him the right? (laughs) He made everything, right? But then amazingly, even when Adam and Eve say, we're going to go our own way, we're going to say what's right, we're going to eat the fruit, we don't want you anymore, we want to call our own shots, the Bible says that God comes and he pursues them. And it's not just that he pursues them, he covers them. And then he makes a promise. One's coming who's going to crush the head of the serpent while the serpent bruises his heel. It's the first messianic promise. That's Genesis 3.15. Then we saw that he's the God who makes his own agreements from the life of Abraham. 
Remember when they make the covenant, only one person walks down the aisle of making the covenant. That's God himself. God swearing by himself, I will perform this. I will do this. I will complete this. And then last week we talked about how he's the God who legislates, that he gives us the law. Again, he gives us the law not so that in obeying the law we will be saved, but as we look to the law, it ushers us on to the person who can save us. The law's, the law's design was never to save you. What the law was designed to do was to show you that you need to be saved. The law is just a mirror. How many of you looked in the mirror when you were getting ready this morning? I looked in the mirror when I was tying my tie, right? Making sure it was straight. Is it straight still? I don't have a mirror. Somebody, okay, so I was doing okay. So, so you, you, you look in the mirror as you get ready, and the mirror shows you what's, what's out of place. That's what the law does. And you know what the law spiritually says is out of place? Everything. Everything's out of place. You can't keep this law. But then, because of our pride, this little idea has wormed its way into our minds that we can actually earn salvation for ourselves. You ask ten people on the planet, no matter what country they're in, nine of them will say something to the effect of, I will get to heaven by doing something. By keeping this law, by keeping these commands, by performing this task, or just by being better than most people. And when they say I'm better than most people, what they're saying is they're, they're, they're using a, a comparison of their own making. And the Bible reveals that, no, 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 the comparison's not with each other. The comparison's with, with the holy, righteous, perfect God. And then when you start comparing that way, okay, that's the law's design. I'm not measuring up. And the law tells us we not, don't measure up, not so we feel bad about ourselves, but so that we will go looking for one who can save us. His name is Jesus. He is the perfect law keeper. And he has been crucified for our sins. And as we'll learn today, Jesus is the God who reigns. We've called this whole series the God-centered life because everybody's coming at life in one of two ways, either in a self-centered, man-centered way, and if you're self-centered, man-centered, you even make God a pawn in your life, or you get the, uh, you get the uh, uh, dichotomy correct, and that it's God who's at the center, God who's at the center of the universe, and our life fits into His purposes. So we're in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Unfortunately, many people think Christianity is all about giving advice. Advice on how to have a better life, advice on how to have a better family, a better marriage, a better this or a better that. That Christianity is essentially a list of do's and don'ts. But Christianity is not, a lot, is not about having a better life. It's about having new life. It's about having e- eternal life. And so here we see that he's the God who reigns. 2 Samuel chapter 7. What sort of image comes to your mind when we talk about a king or a monarch? The last king America had, it didn't go so well, did it? We decided to rebel. We decided we didn't like him telling us what to do so much, particularly taxing us without any representation. It's safe to say whatever monarchs that are in the world, we're glad they're elsewhere and not here, right? And we may even enjoy seeing a little of the royal pomp over in Britain, right? Do you ever like to just kind of might like the wedding? Was it last year? I mean, they can put on a wedding, can they not? White horses, dazzling apparel. But even the Queen of England, truthfully, doesn't have much power. She's a constitutional monarch. So our modern day examples of kings and monarchs are actually quite far removed from what was meant by a king in ancient times. For example, when we say, Pharaoh of Egypt. He had all power. 
He had all authority. There was no checks, no balances, no house of representatives. If he wanted somebody dead, they died. If he wanted something built, it was built. And that's the way it is with the kings here that we'll see in Scripture. When the, when the Bible talks about God as being king, it's not referring to him as a constitutional monarch, okay? It's not like, well, yeah, he reigns, but. No, it's he reigns, period. You know, there's only one word that you can say to a king when he asks you to do something, if we're understanding it correctly. You know what the one word is? Yes. That's all you can say to a king. There's not a, there's not a back and forth dialogue with the king. There's not a, uh, there's not a let's, let's find some middle ground sort of way. So when the king says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You know what you need to do? By his grace, you must, you must repent. Now when the Bible talks of God as king, it's not talking about sort of the way we understand kings at times, particularly in our modern days. No one holds veto power over him. He's not going to run for re-election. And he doesn't have a term limit. You know, I said, well, well, he might have said this, but in two years we'll vote him out. There's no voting God out. He made everything. Now, we like to pretend that uh, there's a check on his authority. But you don't tell kings what to do. Kings tell us what to, to do. So as Christians, we're citizens of two worlds. We live here in America, and yet we are, more importantly, citizens of God's kingdom. It's very dangerous to try and live in God's kingdom under His authority, but bringing to it an earthly understanding of government. The Lord, Psalm 103, 19, has established His throne in heaven, and His kingdom rules over all. Daniel 4, 35. He does as he pleases. With the powers of heaven and of the peoples of the earth, no one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now here's the amazing thing. God can do whatever he pleases. And it pleased him, as the scripture says, to crush him. It pleases God to redeem us. Go with me. I know I've already asked you in 2 Samuel 7. But go with me just for a moment to Luke 15. So hold, hold in your spot in 2 Samuel 7. Go with me to Luke chapter 15. I want to show you what pleases God. God can do whatever he wants to do, and here's what he's decided to do. Luke, six, uh, Luke 15, verse 1. It's talking when, about Jesus. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Quick application. How do you know if Jesus is really being proclaimed if sinners are drawing near? If Jesus is being proclaimed, sinners actually start to draw near. So if there's any time that they say they're preaching Jesus, but sinners and tax collectors, so to speak, want nothing to do with it, well, Christ obviously in some way, shape, or form is not truly being proclaimed. It's the sinners and tax collectors who draw near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. They were excellent grumblers, complainers, all the time complaining about Jesus. Saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them a parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more rejoicing where? In heaven, over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. 
See what gets the attention of heaven are sinners who, who repent. Are people who are so overwhelmed by the grace of God that they, that they say, uh, uh, God, I have nothing but you and I have everything I need in you. The, the, heaven rejoices when sinners repent. One who repents, the 99 people who just kind of sit around and say whatever they're going to say, grumbling or complaining. That's what gets God's attention. He can do whatever he wants to do. Did you hear what he wants to do? He wants to find the one sheep. And then just so that they, in case they missed the point, he tells them another parable. He says, or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. Isn't that the way it works in most houses? If something's missing in a house, do you know who's best at finding it? Mom. Moms can find anything, can't they? You know, I have three little children. One of the times they'll come up to me and say, I lost such and such. I said, well, go look for it. You know how long they look? Maybe a minute. And I said, well, where did you look? They said, well, I went into my room. I said, well, what did you do in my room? I looked on my bed. What else did you do? I didn't find it on my bed. They, they, they give out a steam pretty fast. They just, they, they, and how it works in my house is usually, okay, I'm tired of talking to dad. Let me go find the person who will search this house until it's found. And you know who that is? Mom. Moms can find anything. Moms know where it is. Moms can find anything but that one missing sock, right? That's the only thing. We don't know where the sock is. But the toy... We can find the toy. The book that you really want? Oh, you want a corduroy. I know where corduroy is. Corduroy is under the couch. Uh, sit there. It's been there the last three days. Mom, moms know where everything is. So this lady starts to find it. And it says that I love this part. And I pray that it blesses your house, uh, your soul. She seeks diligently until she finds it. You know what it's saying? It's not going to stop looking. Sometimes you look for something and you're just like, uh, I don't really need it anyway. You know what God's saying? I need to find him. I need to find her. Not under the couch, but stuck in that dead-end sin. Uh, where's so-and-so? Oh, he's still looking for liberty and pornography. We're going to go get him. Have you seen so-and-so? I know right where he is. Come on. Let's go get him. Let's go get her. She's still trying to measure up. She's still trying to find life in this relationship. He's still looking here. Let's go get him. And he seeks diligently until she finds it. And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. Now, we already did announcements, but do you know why we're doing My Hope with Billy Graham? Because it's the heart of God to do it. To say, hey, 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 come to my house. let 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 me help you find what it is that you've been looking for, and who it is that's been looking for you. Now, who can give a testimony? Who remembers when God found you? Who remembers where you were when God grabbed a hold of you and said, there's my one sheep. I love what it says. He puts it on the shoulders, and he carries the sheep back. He carries the sheep back. He doesn't say, come on, little sheep, come on, come on, come on. Little breadcrumb, come here, come here. No, he puts the sheep, puts it on his shoulders. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world like some lost sheep. You know what a sheep will do, don't you? A sheep will walk himself right off a cliff. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, he, he made us alive together with him and raised us up with him. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in order that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his mercy and kindness towards us who believe. It's by grace you have been saved through faith. It is the gift of God. He can do whatever he wants to do. He's the king and here's what he wants to do. I want to go find him. 
I want to go looking for him. And I'm going to look for him until I find him. And then he tells one other parable in Luke 15. And that's about a dad who had two sons. You remember this. And one of the sons came to his dad and said, Dad, I want the property that's coming to me. So his father gave him the property. And he went to a far-off country. Some of you have been to the far-off country, haven't you? And there he squandered his inheritance with reckless living. Some of you have been there, haven't you? And then it says, and when he spent everything, there arose a famine in the land. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. Now, nobody, no, no, nobody sitting in school today saying, one day I want to sit in a field and feed pigs, right? That's just, for a Jewish person, they couldn't think of anything worse to be, to be doing that. And the Bible says something interesting. It says it right there in Luke 15, when he came to himself. You got a prodigal in your life. Here's your prayer. Almighty God, by your grace, help him come to himself. Help him come to himself. Help him come to himself, oh God. But let me give you a caution. Most of us don't come to ourselves until we've come to the end of ourselves. And that's what's true of this. And he says, this boy says, he came to himself and said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough to eat? And here I am, starving. He said, I will arise and go. That's a picture of repentance. It's a glorious picture of repentance. So I got to get up and get up out of here, right? You, you, you're in a stronghold sin. Guess what you need to do? You need to get up and get out of there. There's nothing for you there. Got to get up and go. He said, and I will go to and I will say to my father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Now, what does that sound like to you? You remember this statement of Jesus? Blessed are the, what? Poor in spirit theirs is the kingdom i've sinned against you i'm broke i'm flat broke can't repay you can't apologize enough can't make it up can't do it over i've got nothing just make me as one of your hired servants blessed are those who mourn they shall be comforted and then here's what the bible says while he was still a long way off his father saw him now there's only one way the father could see him while he's still a long way off you know what that is he was looking for him, and he sees a little dust cloud. We're talking about ancient Israel. You see a long way, especially if you're looking for something. A little, is that so-and-so? Is that my son? That can't be my son. He's got hardly a, nothing but shredded robe on him. And the Bible says, listen to this, our salvation hangs on this little phrase. When he saw him, he felt compassion. It reminds me of Genesis 3. God goes and they're hiding from him. What have you done? Why are you hiding? Who told you? There's this compassion of God. And the compassion of God compels that he says, I won't leave him there. And the Bible says, back to Luke 15, I know we're skipping over, but everywhere you look in the Bible, here's the message. Genesis to Revelation. God saw and felt compassion and ran. He didn't just kind of, as we call it, mosey on down in fact in that culture men didn't run i kind of wish i lived in that culture the way i feel most days but but they didn't wear these suits and ties like we got on today they they, they the, the way they they kind of wore this robe and it was embarrassing in that culture for a man i know it sounds silly to let his legs show that's another reason i wish i lived in that culture in order to run, he'd have to kind of hike his robe up a little bit to get his legs going. 
Do you remember, do you remember the beginning? The Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling, complaining. Then they get to the story of this father. Their full anticipation, Pharisees and scribes, full anticipation is this. His father saw him, ran to him, and smacked him. That's what, that, that's what they would have done. That's the full understanding. Here's what the Bible says. So in the original hearers, when Jesus said this, here's what you would have heard. <gasps> His father saw him, felt compassion, ran to him, embraced him, hugged him. And the Greek says, and kissed him over and over and over and over. You see the scenes like he just, he just love tackled him. Fell on the ground. And he says, bring the robe, bring the ring, bring the shoes, kill the calf. We're celebrating. We're at the biggest party we ever had because this son of mine, he was dead. And now he's alive. Three stories. Back to back to back. So we don't miss the point. He's in the heavens. He can do whatever he pleases. It pleases him to find the lost sheep. Luke 15 wasn't really even our text this morning. It was supposed to be 2 Samuel 7. But I want to um, <laughs> just set these notes aside. In 2 Samuel 7, God talks all to, to, uh, all to David about how he's going to make an everlasting king, kingdom. His line's never going to end. David had this crazy idea. David's idea was, I'm going to build God a temple. David thought, I'm going to do God a favor. I'm going to build him a temple. And God comes along and says, no, 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 no. no. Let's just hold up for a moment, David. This is my story, and I dictate what happens. Because you remember, who had the idea to be a father of a great nation? Abraham or God? God had the idea. Abraham didn't come to God one day and say, you know what, God, I've been thinking. And I, what I think is I should be the father of a great nation. That's not how it happened. In fact, God worked it out to where this is past the point that Abraham could even have children that he had a child. So God likes to work things in a way that only he gets the credit and only he gets the glory. Who had the idea to go to rescue the people, the Hebrews in Egypt? Moses? Well, you know what? Actually, Moses did have that idea. And when he was a young man, he tried to bring it about himself. He tried to kill, a, kill an Egyptian and lead a rebellion, and it, it, it resulted in utter disaster. Then he had to go to the backside of the desert and learn this real simple lesson. God is the one who dictates. God is the one who says, now is the time. We get antsy, don't we? Do you know how often it says, wait on the Lord in the Scripture? About every other page. You know why? Oh, we got to get going. we got to get going. we got to go do this. we got to do we got to free. we got to do that. Wait on the Lord. And so David says, I'm going to build the Lord a temple. And God comes along and says, no, you're not. But I'll tell you what I, will, what I am going to do, David. I am going to make your kingdom an everlasting kingdom. Now, within two generations, it had all fallen apart in Jerusalem. Rehoboam, David's grandson, comes along and thinks he's really somebody, and the whole kingdom ends up splitting. And, and, and then there's some, some good kings and some bad kings in Jerusalem. Most of them bad, quite frankly. Even the good ones aren't quite that great. So, so we're left at the end of 2 Samuel with an interesting question. Did God know what he was talking about? This whole eternal king thing? I mean, you, you go to Jerusalem today, where's the king? There's no king in Jerusalem today. Was God not quite sure what he was talking about? Let's do one more verse. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. You know, you can be greatly blessed by genealogies. 
Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. It is an everlasting kingdom because he is the eternal king. And kings can do whatever they want to do, especially when they are the king. And you know what this king decided to do? The Bible says he decided to come as a servant. The Bible says he humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He's crucified. Now, now it's true, he came looking for the one lost sheep, but in order to really find the one lost sheep, it's not just a shepherd going and finding the nice little cuddly sheep, putting on his, uh, putting on his shoulders and taking him home. It's coming for the lost, the sinfully dead in their trespasses and sins, as the scripture says. And, and, and he doesn't just take a sinner home. No, the sin has to be paid for. And so he's more than just a shepherd. He is the good shepherd, but he's the shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And that's what he wants to do. Therefore, God has given him the name that is above every name. That at the name of who? The name of Jesus. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so he comes, and he comes looking. But he doesn't just come looking in those days. He's come looking today. Now, just a simple question is, do you need to be found? Are you lost? I mean, you've never come to faith in Jesus Christ. You've never bowed the knee. I'm going to just give you a scriptural encouragement. Your knee will bow to Christ. I plead with you to bow the knee today because he is the eternal king. No term limit, no re-election, no second chance. But listen, he's the king to bow down to who's come and given himself for you. He loves you. God could not have done more for you than he's done for you in Christ Jesus. So one, in a moment we're going to stand and we're going to sing and we're going to have an invitation just like we always have an invitation. And the invitation is always, come to Jesus. Come to Christ. You know, you, you, you have that cliche sometimes I'll hear. They had a come to Jesus meeting. We need a lot of come to Jesus meetings. Christ is inviting you to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So your sins will be forgiven. Eternity will be secured for you. And you will be, as the scripture says, raised to life in Christ. That's the first part of the invitation. Second part of the invitation is perhaps you're a believer in Jesus. You know that you've put your faith in him, but you're just going through a season of your life right now where uh, you feel like you're far from him. You're stuck in something or, or just what, I don't know how to articulate it exactly, but it's almost as if I'm speaking, you're already inwardly saying, no, 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 you don't even have to go any further. That's me. That's me. That's me. Just in a time of invitation, you don't have to do anything dramatic or what this, that, or the other. Sometimes you might want to, but, but, but perhaps you just want to say, Lord, <laughs> I've been hearing all morning that your desire is to come find the lost, Lord. And I want to be found. You know, when I play hide-and-seek with my children, they're terrible at hiding. My two-year-old, we play all the time. She hides in the same place every time. I say, why don't you diversify? And then she says, what does that mean? I say, why don't you pick somewhere else? And she says, okay. Count to ten, come back, same spot, right by her bed. 
I said, you're not very good at this game, are you? And she just smiles. We have a tendency to hide in the same places over and over and over and over and over. And you can't hide from him. He knows where his sheep are. So I want you to stand with me. and We're going to sing. I know we're doing our service a little bit different. And sometimes when you do things out of the ordinary, uh, you're just used to something else. We're creatures of habit. I know that. So you see on your bulletin, we're going to sing a couple songs while we're singing. It's just like we always sing. We're singing unto the Lord. The only thing slightly different is I'm just going to stand right down here. I'm just going to be kind of in this area. Uh, I might face you a little while. I might start singing myself. I'm just making myself available. I'm going to stand. If you've got a burden on your heart, a concern, or you say, Brandon, <laughs> I need to be saved by the grace of God. I'm going to stand right there. We're going to sing, and then we'll move right into the last thing we'll do together is our, is our offering because you always offer unto the king, right? So let's pray together. And, Father, we're just asking for the Holy Spirit to have freedom in our service. We've done things not quite the order that we usually do them. So now we want to respond to you, the king. And it's good news to us that there's no term limits on the everlasting king of kings, lord of lords. Kings can do whatever they want. And the king of kings wants to find the lost. And when the lost are found... God, there's great rejoicing in heaven. Oh, God, help us to be people who rejoice over what you rejoice over. Lead our time. Grant us a poverty of spirit. We know we have no good thing to bring to you. But we thank you that the everlasting king made himself a servant, was crucified for us. Lead our time, Father, by your grace and by your spirit. May Christ be exalted in his name. We pray, amen.